Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Time it's gone off. Never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. That's. Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. You have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to me. I'm down Swanfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you Johnny man? Owen and Murphy here with the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast today. Kieran, how are you? Hello there, Owen. Uh, if you spent more than a couple of seconds on Twitter today, you'd have been caught up in a full-on, old-school, nostalgia fest. It's 25 years to the day since Ireland beat Romania on penalties in Genoa. Now, I have a couple of years on you, Kieran. Of course. So I was a tournament veteran myself in 1990. The eight-year-old me was it's wide-eyed and naive about mm. all the goings-on at major tournaments in Euro 88. I remember that one vividly. By the time Italian 90 rolled around, I was a grizzled old veteran. I was like a, a jaded, cynical football man of 10. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you on. I hear you. I mean, those two years. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't really matter a whole lot now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come right out and say it, on. The difference between my age and your age Just now like in age. how we live our lives. I'm looking at those laughter lines around your eyes, Murph, I'm thinking... It's, it's <laughs> a life well lived, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. There is a man who has enjoyed his 20s and most of his 30s, mm-hmm. judging by his face. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, no, I, I, I understand but that. But back but, then, yeah. But the difference between an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old... Well, I mean, the difference between me being 6 in Euro 88 and me being 8 in Italian is basically... I was a sentient being that can remember <laughs> well I can actually remember your idea because I told you this story about 10 years ago I'm going to wager mm-hmm. um, that's okay uh, there's a 10 year moratorium and all these things yeah. you can then repeat your stories so I'm just sneaking in how else door. are you going to have a long career in broadcasting it's true it's true <laughs> I should actually just keep a calendar really <laughs> yeah so uh, it's ticked down anyway and I, 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 now, I can now retell you the story of <laughs> Ireland England ooh I'm very interested idea. in this story here. Um, basically two Men from my village, from Milton, uh, were ordained as priests on the day that Ireland played England in Euro 88. And this was a major, major deal. Like, it was a huge day of celebration in uh, in the village. And um, uh, I remember, to be honest, a lot more about this ordination, right, <laughs> than I do about Ireland-England. But um, I do remember... 
my wardrobe on that day. Now, I don't know if I remember it just clearly or if I remember it from photographs right. that I've since seen of the ordination of the celebration. And, in fact, uh, a VHS presentation. Uh, they, they videoed the entire ordination and it was presented by my mother, right? Mm-hmm. So my mother introed and outroed this unbelievably bad VHS so hold on a recording. second. Francis was doing pieces to camera. Pieces to camera. Yeah, yeah. You're very welcome, welcome to the ordination. Welcome, oh. welcome to Milton. Uh, it's the day. It's you know June the sixth or whatever the hell it was, 1988. Uh, and she she uh, mispronounced the word resplendent. Right? <laughs> well, that's not so an she, easy one. So she said resplendent or something, right? Yeah. This is what counted for humour in the Murphy household. We were slag- we slagged her off about this for years, and. Um, but I, I do remember that in the midst of all this, there was a football game going on. And I remember actually being at the top of the entrance to my house uh, as the Ireland England was about to finish and about to get a lift down to the village to see this ordination. But I can't remember anything else about your idea. <laughs> what I do remember about Italian 90 is that our TV, that Italian 90 was so huge an event that it caused a recalibration of where the television was in our sitting room and you know it's big when you know you're actually moving furniture to get so that everyone so, as in everyone else's front room I presume the TV is set in a corner and the you know so the closer you are to the television the more you know the, obviously the more uh, fights there will be over that chair of course but we had to move it into the centre of the of the, of the still against one of the walls obviously but into the centre so that as many people as possible could get a, a brilliant view of the matches um, and I remember that, and I remember getting bored during the Ireland Italy quarter final and playing football for about ten yeah, or fifteen minutes during to, it. Too young to fully appreciate it. Mate. Yeah, but other than that, now I don't really. I'm sorry, Owen, it I, opened I don't, up. I, I, I don't have a whole lot to contribute to the nostalgia fest currently currently going on. You're all about Euro '88, but I the one of the things it did was open up my mind to the concept of travel. Bizarrely, not that I went to the World Cup or anything. Yeah. I wasn't as lucky as that. But one of my uncles had actually. I, I watched all those games in my grand's house in the TV room in my grand's house with. The, my uncles and their friends. Funny now that you mention situating yourself in a certain part of the room. Mm. A lot of them, a lot of my uncles and their friends back then seemed to be happy enough to l- sort of half lie on the floor, you know, with the elbow propping them yeah. up, thereby leaving all the nice seats free at the back. Really I was not happy enough with that. Plunk myself really down. Really uncomfortable. I don't know why you would do that. Uh, maybe it's just your the uncle's friends are idiots. On they're idiots. <laughs> you can say it right now. But one of my uncles had actually travelled over for the game for the Romania match. I remember being so impressed by this. He had sat there in the TV room with the rest of us for all the group games mm. suddenly there was one space on the floor free that man had gone over and was now in the stadium you yeah. can actually go to these things uh, which really impressed me quite a lot but the long term impact of the day is that I think in my own head I attach nothing but positive feelings to the concept of the penalty shootout mm. doesn't matter how often my teams have lost them since I can skip over the 2002 World Cup in my head doesn't matter that our second captain's team was beaten at the weekend and yeah. won I still when a penalty shootout's about to start I think here we go, we're going to win this. It's still good vibes, you know? Good vibes. And it doesn't matter how crappy the game is, I, I would still always say, if there's a penalty shootout on, I'll watch it. Because oh, yeah. someone's going to be David O'Leary and someone's going to be Packy Bonner. Mm. I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, if you mention penalty shootouts to, to an Irish person, those two names are the immediately the two names that, that just pop into people's If you can give, forgive me one more piece of nostalgia from that go on, then. magical... And then we'll... Then we, there is no more nostalgia in this, in this show. No, that's... Oh, well, there is a little bit. We're going to talk about Stan Bowles. But, with sorry, Fanning. not Italian 90. Not Italian 90 related after this. Uh, well, yeah, let's not promise anything at this early <laughs> stage, but we'll try not to indulge too much. Have I ever told you about 
this could be another one. This, there could be a moratorium on this one. I might have told you this story okay. 10 years ago. Uh, my my own penalty shootout experience of that time. No. In a playing perspective, I was involved in the uh, St. Joseph's Boys in Salinogan. I used to run something called the Mini World Cup. I believe they're quite common these days. It was revolutionary at the time. It certainly yeah. appeared that way to me. load of kids go down. You all get thrown into different teams. 20, was it 24 teams in the World Cup at that yeah. stage? Just organised exactly along the lines of the World Cup and you're back the next day and back the next day. Uh, all very well run. I, was inv- I think I was involved in the Spanish team, which now is obviously amazing. Back then you're thinking, oh no, we're big tournament yeah. chokers. This isn't going to work out for us at all. Oh God, look, it looks like I'm uh, Anthony Goikache. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's no good. We were up against Romania. I'm going to say it was Romania. It, may, it could have been anyone, but for the yeah. purpose of the story, uh, drab nil-nil draw. Uh, not too surprising. It's quite hard to get the ball from one end of the pitch to the other in football back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, penalty shootout, two-two. A lot of penalties being missed. I was the final taker for our team, for the Spaniards. Bearing in mind our reputation here, that hung over me like a cloud. International, yeah, international, international chokers. chokers here. The ball is handed to me by a teammate, having rolled to him, with the words. Well, he said something along the lines of, "Wouldn't fancy being you." As he looked around at all the people watching, there seemed yeah. to be thousands. I mean, there were certainly. I would say there were certainly. 25 or 30 but there seemed to be about 10,000 people watching there uh, including my aforementioned uncles I think might, might well have been there so the pressure was on place a penalty down and this is days after maybe two days after the Ireland-Romania game in the World Cup all I thought was David O'Leary yeah stepped up did you put it exactly where David the key, yeah the keeper apparently hadn't been watching any of the World Cup because he dove to the right I put it to well, you know what he was thinking where O'Leary was uh, where O'Leary put his over to the keeper's left yeah. good height for the keeper if he had gone that way but in it goes cue yeah. mass celebration well you know what the goalie was thinking what I'm just going to dive where Packy Waller dived. He was do. He did what he needed to do yeah. to recreate his Italian ninety moment, and you did what you needed to do. Happy days, ah. and we move on. Uh, we are going to talk. I mentioned Dion Fanning there, and the chat about uh, Stan Bowles, who's one of. If you ever see these uh, stories or any of these reminiscences of the great football mavericks of the 1970s that lit up the England game. Generally got very few caps for England, mm. but were fondly remembered by club fans around the place. He's always right there, right up there with George Best's most obvious one. He kind of transcends it all, but Frank Worthington, these kind of names. Uh, Stan Bowles is one of them. He's unfortunately been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in the last week or so, and that news has prompted a lot of fond recollections of his career. So we thought we'd uh, give Dion a call about this because Dion has professed his fondness for QPR in the past. He's actually interviewed the man, so we'll chat about him today. We're going to talk to Tony Barrett about Liverpool's busy dealings in the transfer market, specifically the signing of Roberto Firmino. But let's start by welcoming Emmett Malone to the studio to chat about the latest stories around the FAI. Emmett, how are you? Hi, Owen. How's it going? Uh, good. Our weekly chat at this stage about, about this kind of stuff. But it seems to me there are two connected allegations. One of them is that this Argentina-friendly was organised as an extension of FIFA's deal with the FAI. Yeah. And the, sep- the connected one was that the players were paid $10,000 each not to injure Leo Messi. Um, are... Are both suggestions as ludicrous as people are saying today? Well, the first one is completely out of the question. Uh, the Obviously, the uh, handball with Thierry Henry and uh, all that followed that, the settlement, uh, the, the money that was arranged uh, happened in um, November of, of uh, 2009. The friendly against Argentina was actually uh, announced and covered in the Irish Times and everywhere else in June of that year. So it happened uh, five months before the game. So there's no way the Argentina game was any, any part of that. I mean, okay. the, the, F, the FAI knew the stadium would be reopening. They were looking for 
prestige friendly to uh, to mark the opening from their point of view, and uh, and they'd line that up a long way in advance. The, the difficulty is that I, I guess you know, and the reason this this you know um, links in with a lot of uh, other things that have gone on is that Trapattoni, uh, you know, in, in the wake of the the Thierry Henry handball, did suggest that they were given or offered a friendly. And the one that generally people have looked at is the Brazil game, uh, which was announced within a few days of the Paris match. Uh, the venue for it, uh, which was, I think, um, the Emirates, uh, was announced on the day that the FAI did their deal for the €5 million uh, Euro with FIFA. Um, and it was organised uh, by a match agency company called Kentaro, who did a lot of work for FIFA. Now, the FAI deny that, um, that uh, you know, there is any connection and they deny that that FIFA gave it to them in any way, but you know there are there are there are, still, there are question marks. There are, well, you, if you if you were going to if you were going to point to uh, the FAI haven't been given a friendly, then that's the the, the one you would uh, point to. The Argentina yeah. one, no. But so what about the second part of that? Because the players have obviously all come out and yeah. said, "Listen, this is absolute nonsense." Kilban, Keith Andrews, Darnell D was involved. That yeah. day. don't know anything about this. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, and look, I mean, I talked to a couple of them yesterday, um, and certainly by the tone of their reaction, you would have to say they found it astonishing. You know. Um, they, they they seem very genuinely uh, shocked by the suggestion and kind of outraged by the idea that this would go on. Moreover, like, you know, talked to uh, Darren for quite some time about the whole idea of, you know, those sort of bonuses and, 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 and Kilban touched on it as well in fact all of them really did you know Kilban was talking about you know the issue of, of international insurance which it was and still to some lesser extent still is uh, an issue in international football um, but the idea that you know they, they all seemed completely kind of uh, it was new to them the idea that anyone would be paid uh, a bonus to, uh, to, to, to not tackle or not injure a, a footballer as a way around it I mean the, the problem for the FAI here you know and, and it's, it's not an enormous problem I'd think we can you know say with some degree of safety although you're always open to just you know perhaps everybody's just lying you know and that's um as a journalist you kind of ring around a bunch of people and they all you know seem you know they all tell the same story and they all seem very genuine about that and i've absolutely no reason to doubt them i mean you know these are they're they're, they're, they're the players you mentioned who've been all in quoted i think they're very good guys you know and and, and, and I, I absolutely believe what they're saying i mean the problem from the fai is that you know of course this sort of thing gets a reaction now because of some of the dealings that they've done, you know, and the involvement in Grandona. I mean, this, um, for, for people, assuming people know, this, this originates in a story in Argentina, uh, written in La Nacion uh, newspaper, quite a large article, uh, kicks off with the idea, you know, the, with the story background um, of the FAI getting their five million from FIFA. And, and everything flows from that then, you know. And, and the, you know, the problem for the FAI is that they've done, you know, a dodgy deal with, with, with FIFA. I mean, they, you know, John Delaney points to it and says, well, what a good business it is and that's all fine you know but once you're involved in something like that then everything seems a little bit less incredible you know and um, the story here revolves around this guy Grondona Julio Grondona who is a fairly loathsome character you know uh, very dodgy um, was uh, president of the FA of the Argentinian FA for a very long time um, has a long track record of doing pretty dodgy deals uh, most recently he made the headlines a full year after his death uh, when FIFA decided to blame him for authorising the 10 million dollar bribe to Jack Warner which the which the South Africans had asked FIFA to facilitate as they were having a bit of difficulty getting it through their books um, and you go back further Grandona who you know like a lot of uh, uh, South American um, 
football administrators of his of his era seem to you know live comfortably enough with a military junta. Um, he, in terms of the English World Cup bid, which threw up you know so many kind of incredible stories. Uh, apparently, by his own by his own version of events, had the English bidders in the room and told them that he uh, we, they could talk about giving the World Cup to uh, uh, to England when England gave the uh, Falkland Islands back to Argentina. And by his own account, his own account of the uh, encounter, he said they looked very sad after that and left. <laughs> um, uh, more, he's, he's made a, a number of anti-Semitic uh, comments, uh, I think, in terms of... I don't know whether the referee in question was Jewish, but uh, certainly he seems to have, when asked about the standard of refereeing in Argentina at one point, said that uh, you know he couldn't imagine a, a Jew coping with uh, refereeing games at the highest level and um, uh, suggested on another occasion that the Jews don't like it when it gets rough, which which reminds me of a, of, of a quote that the old kind of football thing about uh, they don't like it up them. And uh, somebody put this to a, a famous uh, Italian journalist one stage about some team, and he and he asked the question, which seems uh, perfectly logical in circumstances. Why would they? Um, but uh, you know, he's he's not a guy. He's not a likable guy. Um, in this in this instance, it's entirely possible that his story was doing the rounds in Argentina. It might, you know, the way John Delaney portrays the five million pay- payment to uh, FIFA have seemed really clever and kind of like boxing clever and the way, you know, um, just a little bit, bit, bit kind of operating in the shade, but in a, in a smart sort of way. But this is not something, this is not a guy who you want to get dragged into. And, and to this day, we don't know whether perhaps it's, and it's not out of the question either, that maybe Gondona pocketed the kind of two, 200 grand that would have been required to pay off all the Irish players and uh, told everybody that's where the money went. Kilban says that there have been a lot of allegations over the last month or so aimed at us. Mud sticks, I suppose. It's not nice when these sort of allegations are being thrown against the players. It's basically questioning us as professionals. It's questioning us as people as well. Keith Andrews had a, a previously expressed anger at the FAI taking when that five million story broke in the first yeah. place. Is there a sense that the players are... are feel now that they're getting dragged into this I think there's always been a, 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 a you know a suggestion with the with the players that you know they, they get frustrated when when you know the FAI is perceived to have let them down you know and in the old days it used to be over travel arrangements or whatever you know like I mean you still the, the great Eamon Dunphy stories going right back to the trips to Poland or whatever um, uh, Saipan all of these things you know and, and, and the FAI has had had a, had a difficult time you know keeping the players happy um, uh, they've sometimes let themselves down and and the players down quite badly. I think in more recent times, obviously, for the most part, um, uh, things have been more professional. There have been exceptions. There have been problems um, a- along the way. Um, uh, some of them publicised, some of them not. Um, but uh, but I do think, yeah, the, the, I think in this instance, you know, again, this is the sort of thing that happens when you're, when you're not completely above board about things, you know. And, um, I mean, this allegation yesterday, look, I, I, I think there may be an element of, of a guy writing a piece that maybe he didn't, you know, forgot, you know, how the modern media works, you know. Uh, maybe he didn't anticipate that, with it, you know, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of coincidences here. There's a bunch of Irish journalists in, uh, in Chile at the moment for the South American Championships. They're following the, the, mm. the Argentinian papers. Um, you have Irish journalists tweeting about the article from, from uh, Santiago yesterday. Um, and uh, maybe when he wrote the piece, he didn't really imagine that uh, within an hour or two, everybody in Ireland was going to be getting so excited about it. But, you know, the, the bottom line is that, I, I, again, I say, if you do business in certain ways, then people are more likely, you know, more inclined to be, you know, to believe that you do business in that particular way, you know. Emmett, we'll leave it there. Thanks a million. Great pleasure. FIFA made a movie recently. Did they? John Delaney could run anything. They did, they did, actually. About themselves? Yeah, about themselves. Oh, that's ego, isn't it? 
he could run FIFA. Certainly better than Seth Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible, Eagle, but the real movie's on its way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself, and I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you. We wanted two exclusives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, well, I do. And that was it. We wanted two exclusives. And I just asked her to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds, and I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, yeah. uh, there were some expletive views. We came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement, if you like. And you've used the figure there. Well done to you. Yeah, I think we've probably all had a look at the uh, the videos that have been put up by the likes of the 42.ie and balls.ie of highlights from the game. In particular, a lot of people are focusing on Richard Dunn's tackle. A lot of you know, a lot of what went on in that game, uh, judging by the seven and a half minute highlights package I watched of Leo Messi's moments, was players very uh, failing miserably to tackle Leo Messi. But yeah. if the case, if they all were earning ten grand a pop, then uh, you would have to assume that. A lot of opponents have gotten very rich by playing Leo Messi over the years because, especially in friendlies, uh, you, when you're not really fully fully tuned in. Uh, when we did also see that one Richard Dunn tackle, a lot of people zoomed in on that one. Richard Dunn raking his studs in the legs of uh, then the legs of Leo Messi. So the hypothetical ten grand was taken out of the yeah. pocket of Richard Dunn there. Uh, well, I can only presume that you know that's that's ten grand that Richard Dunn is not going to get. I mean, was it? I wonder. Was the ten grand? Was it? If, as long as you didn't personally injure Lionel Messi, you got your ten grand. And was it just the, if the, say if Richard Dunn is like, right, okay, well you're not getting your ten grand, but everyone else is getting their ten grand. Mm. I mean, I just think there's holes in this story, Owen. There are a lot of holes in this story. It's very hard to uh, persuade a group of footballers together to, to all do accept, yeah, well, to like to try and win, <laughs> to all accept a certain amount of uh, money for something that they shouldn't agree to, and then to, for that story never to leak out for a number of years either, because a yeah. lot of people would know about that if that was the case. If each of the eleven people are telling at least one or two people, one or two closer, and that, yeah, it just uh, I would be very surprised if the players. And as Emmett said, there's no reason to dispute what the players have been saying. Mm-hmm. That is that they didn't know anything about any of this and that it's uh, that it uh, is a bit of nonsense, really. Been a busy few weeks for Liverpool since the transfer window opened. Tony Barrett of the Times is going to talk to us now about Roberto Firmino is the big one we want to talk about today. Uh, Tony, the second most expensive player in Liverpool's history once the medical all gets cleared up and all the rest of it. £29 million is what it could rise to. You described this in one of your pieces as a statement of intent by the club. What did you mean by that? Just simply that he's the kind of signing that Liverpool have tried and failed to make in, in recent years. They've uh, they've looked at a number of players who would fit into that category of if maybe if not where class then just in from the category below the players who may potentially uh, reach that standard one day. Uh, they looked at like of Henrik Mkhitary and Diego Costa, uh, William who went to Chelsea as well. So there've been quite a few players that they've gone gone in for and at, at this kind of uh, fee level as well and they haven't been able to get the deal over the line. Uh, in this case, they've gone in and they've gone in as quick and as hard as they possibly can and got the deal done and I think that was the criticism of Liverpool for, for the last three or four years that when they have gone in for a player of this ilk, they've never been able to get to get the deal across the line because they've acted a little bit too slow that they haven't been decisive enough and they've allowed others the time to act uh, and, and that has killed their hopes because Liverpool can't offer what some of the other clubs can offer in terms of Champions League football, maybe also in wages. Uh, 
so when Liverpool do get a player of at this level, uh, they may be able to get it. Do you have to move heaven and there to get him? And I think that's what they've done in this case. They, they have gone balls out to sign him and, and, and they have done that. They seem to have got their act together full stop in this transfer window. Obviously learning from maybe those mistakes of previous summers. They uh, it started with Rodgers. They gave him his uh, sort of seal of approval or their seal of approval at the start of the summer and they've made a, a bunch of signings already. Yeah, and it's, it's put a completely different complexion on the summer for Liverpool. If you go back two or three weeks, two to two, three weeks, and it was changing the backroom staff uh, and Rodgers had his review which he came through and there was a lot of uncertainty and there was a bad feeling about Liverpool there was negativity there was, there was a, a wonder of which direction the club was going in but, but that's changed the, the, the number of signs they made and also the type of signs Liverpool signed uh, of the 60 signed uh, about the 5 signed and it could be 6 pretty shortly uh, most of them are going to be first team players they're not there to make up the numbers they're there to play football for Liverpool and I think that, as I say, puts a whole, whole new complexion on the summit. And it is, it does come down to the attitude of the club. It's the way it performs in the transfer market, the type of targets it pursues, how vigorously they do pursue them, and the success or not, or otherwise, in getting those players. So this does seem a different summer. Liverpool are getting the players they actually want, which in previous summers, you'd say, well, they haven't always been able to get the players they really want. Because some of them, but by no means all. But so far, this summer, they are getting their targets. Firmino is an interesting character. I saw Tim Vickery tweeting uh, around the time the story was breaking, saying, listen, a lot of people are asking me about this guy. I don't know a huge amount about him because largely he's uh, become a star away from Brazil, went to Germany reasonably early, wasn't one of these, uh, wasn't hyped as much as maybe some of the other Brazilian players of his era. How much do we know about what he's actually going to bring to Liverpool? I've, I've, I've got to be honest, I don't know a great deal. I've, I've seen bits and, bits and pieces, nothing more than that. Uh, but from speaking to people who've, who've played with him, uh, people who know him from from Brazil, uh, people who know him from Germany, they think very highly of him. Uh, the picture I'm getting is a player who, who works particularly hard, who, who doesn't stop running, who can play anywhere across the front line. He can even play as a false nine if necessary. Although I don't know that's where Liverpool uh, visualise playing him. I play with a lot of skill, a lot of ability, who scores goals, who, who assists goals. It's it, it, it does look, and this this is on paper. It, it does look a good package. Uh, there's no question about that, uh, and that's why the fee is as high as it is. That's why Liverpool have, have had to make him the, the second most expensive player in the club's history. But as ever, it, it all comes down to we'll, we'll see what he, he's like when he when he starts playing. Uh, he's done well for Hoffenheim. There's no question about that. His international career for Brazil started well. That, that, that's also a good sign, even though this Brazil is not certainly not a vintage Brazil. Uh, so it is. It's all going to come down to how quickly he settles and and, and whether uh, he fits in with the players around him. And, and I think a lot of that will depend on the kind of centre forward Liverpool bring in and and uh, how well he links up with Philippe Coutinho. I've seen quotes from Ronaldinho saying this basically takes Liverpool to another level because those two will link up spectacularly well. Uh, but that could be interesting because you've got to get them both into the same team and and with one or two forwards. So that kind of tactical setup it, it will. Will be interesting to see how the pool play going forward. Yeah, what, what striker will they end up with? Do you think Christian Benteke's name hasn't gone away? But you, I know you've been saying that the the fee is still a big issue for Liverpool. There will it be him or will it be somebody a little bit less known to English football fans? I still think it will be Benteke. Benteke's been their number one target for a forward for, for several months. He's been uh, the one that Brendan Rodgers has identified as, as someone who he could build an attack around. 
Uh, I find, uh, I mean, the fee is an issue. There's no question about that. Liverpool don't want to pay 32.5 million for Christian Benteke, which is his exit clause. Uh, Benteke doesn't want to sign a contract at Villa, so I'd imagine Liverpool are thinking Villa have got a bit of a decision to make there. Will they uh, come down probably towards what Liverpool value, which is probably closer to 25, maybe 26 million? So that's that's probably in Villa's hands at the moment. The interesting thing for me on that is, is again, how does this work out? Because I, I look at Ben Teke and I think he's a player who needs wingers. Uh, he's a player who needs delivery from wide areas. I, I know he's got more to his game than just attacking, uh, crossing to the box. He's a good holder playing. He's, he can run on for two balls. He's, he's got a lot going for him as a player, but primarily you, would, you wouldn't want to play him without uh, without width. So I think Liverpool will look to get width in the full-backs, which is why they they're also pursuing Nathaniel Klein from Southampton. It looks yeah. like that deal's a go. So, so on all fronts, Liverpool are, are moving towards putting a kind of a, a team together, a team which will feature quite a few new signings. Are all these big money moves predicated upon the moving out of Raheem Sterling? Is that going to happen? It's just posturing at the moment between, well, not posturing, but it's just essentially bargaining at the moment between City and Liverpool. Do you see that going through? Yeah, I see, I, I see that going through. I, I, I think the the biggest things is the, is the will that exists on on all sides. The uh, Heemsdale is determined to leave Manchester City, determined to to sign him, and, and Liverpool's resistance to that will is, is certainly weakened in, in recent weeks. It's just become too big a problem for them. You've got a player who's, who's clearly not happy. You've got an agent who's trying to get him out, uh, and, and you've got all the issues that go with that—the kind of fan unhappiness and uh, what what happens with with a teammate of Heems still here and he's not pulling his weight. All those issues uh, are being brought to bear and, and obviously the biggest issue of all is the potential for Liverpool to maybe get £50 million for it, for the Heemsdale which, as you say, that, that does cover a lot of their, if not all of their expenditures so far. So the Heem will go but when, when it happens I don't know. I'm expecting another bid from City sooner rather than later but again, whether that matches Liverpool's valuation remains to be seen. Tony, we'll let you go. Thanks a million. Good to speak to you. Take care. And he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. a humorous competition. I saw that. Important man for my selection. That uh, Nathaniel Klein deal looks to be done, by the way, since we spoke to Tony. Southampton have accepted Liverpool's offer of an improved offer of 12.5 million. So they're spending a lot of money. Uh, it looks as though they will, if Tony is right in what he says, that they will ultimately offload. As he said, if, you, if everybody wants the move to happen, the move is generally going to happen. Nobody's in a particularly strong position. Nobody's in a particularly weak position. They just all want to make it. And Man City have plenty of money, so yeah. it should be okay. <laughs> it's like 50 million quid. It's like, ah... Yeah, okay, yeah. You know, it it doesn't seem like there's a burning desire. No. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, that's just the way it goes. Yeah, it's going to be three or four million either way, yeah. I'm sure. Roberto Firmino is quite an impressive website. Uh, of course, well, you know, the first thing you do when you hear about these guys is, you know, you Google them, see what see what you can find out. RobertoFirmino.com uh, pops up pretty quickly. And it is a pretty odd-looking website, hmm. i got to say. Uh, uh, there's some rather strange music playing when... Uh, is there anything more annoying than going on a website and immediately have music playing and 
blaring out. I don't know why people do it. But there it is anyway. And there's an amazing... I would I would say probably skip over most of the tabs. But if you do have a moment, go into the photos uh uh, section there. Let me just give me a second here now. What are we? What, yeah. What's the website here called? Roberto uh, RobertoFermino dot com. I like it. Uh, forward slash photos. If you want to just, yeah. just skip all of the preliminaries, and uh, there's uh, foosball. Uh, you can go in there, see some action shots, or you can go into the uh, uh, private section. Private oh. private photos of Roberto <laughs> Firmino are on the internet. Uh, oh, and I can confirm. And uh, yeah. It's an extremely embarrassing uh, series of photographs. Him wearing uh, a terrible pair of shades. Him uh, spinning a football. Like a basketball. His, yeah. Uh, him wearing his baseball cap back to front. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, but hey, that's fine. You know, what? whatever footballers want to get up to. The, the, the guy is dressed more like a footballer than I would say nearly any footballer I've ever seen in my entire life. But the very best of luck to him. We mentioned Stan Bowles earlier on, who was considered uh, one of these great footballers of his day in the 70s. He's in the news uh, at the moment because, uh, unfortunately, he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. We're joined by uh, Dion Fanning to chat about this because, Dion, uh, we know a bit about your fondness for QPR. You've talked to us about this. You've wrote a couple of, written a couple of great pieces, I should say, in the Sunday Independent. Your uncle was a supporter of QPR. Was the name of Stan Bowles brought up a lot in your early football education? It was a bit... Um uh, I, you know, I think everybody, you know, I, I my father talking about him, like anybody who watched football in the, in the, in the 1970s talked about Stan Bowles. Um, and I, I interviewed him myself about 10 years ago and it was, uh, it was a kind of, you know, what you, you were kind of getting the kind of Stan Bowles experience. Like <laughs> I, I went to, uh, I inter- interviewed him, you know, Brent, he, he, he lives down near Brentford or he did at that time. And Brentford is famously the only the only we're very proud of the fact the only football league ground that has a pub on every corner um, <laughs> and uh i was to meet stan in, in in like i think the griffin at 11 a.m on a tuesday morning uh and i i, I showed up there and by quarter to 11 and by you know quarter past 11 he wasn't there and you know some old kind of regular who i actually i think was from from wexford uh said you know it's very unlike stan to be late uh and it turned out that uh, Stan was in, you know, the Princess Royal, one of the other pubs in the mm-hmm. corner. And I, I had confused him because the Princess Royal was the pub he considered his office. And I was in the <laughs> pub that he considered his kind of relaxing pub, his, his downtime pub. And he got confused because we were doing an interview. He should, uh, it should have taken place in his of office. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna be, it's all going to be businesslike and efficient. Yeah. And these kind of, okay. So, uh, so from there, you know, but it was great. And he was, you know, he does... Uh, I think about somebody like about Stan, like Stan Bowles. I think people, he 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 was somebody that people considered fondly at the time. He was he he is he is in in that bracket of of sportsmen that their 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 weaknesses and their frailties are are, are looked upon fondly by by the public. So you know, you know, nostalgia tends to kind of make people forget the kind of frustrations they had with people. But I think with someone like Sam Bowles, they actually felt people felt it at the time, you know, the fact that he, you know, maybe not managers who, who you know, he, he had a lot of problems with managers through his career. You know, uh, he, Tommy Doherty, Brian Clough, people like that. But I think the fans, especially at QPR who saw him, kind of forgave him the fact that he was popping out a quarter to three to, you know, put, put a bet on or would come over uh, to find out who'd, who'd won the 315 at Haydock Park 
uh, that kind of stuff, which was part of the legend. But the, the, uh, they did forgive him at, at the time, rather than some, sometimes at these things, people look back fondly and forget that at the time it was it was a huge frustration to them that someone was behaving like this. Yeah, I, one of the the VHS tapes most uh, worn to death in the Murphy household growing up was uh, the BBC had released kind of a a compilation of match of the day highlights from the 1970s. So it was match of the day of the 70s released by BBC Sport. And uh, for whatever reason, all of the, these brilliant... So it was basically like a goals of the season for every season between 1970 and 1979. And all of the best goals were being scored by Englishmen like Frank Worthington or Charlie George or Rodney Marsh or Stan Bowles. And you'd be looking at these thinking, my God, these guys are the most brilliant footballers I've ever seen. How come they all don't have 80 England caps? And as it turns out, none of them had got any more than 10 caps, which was, a, a, you know, or, you know, in or around that maybe Rodney Marsh got a few more. But it was a strange thing to watch these brilliant footballers uh, who were absolutely adored, but who were at, were at the same time not even a small bit trusted by English football at the time, at international level at least. Yeah, I, I wonder if they trusted themselves, though, as well, because I think Frank Worthington failed a medical uh, when he could have signed for Liverpool, and he, he put it down to a kind of a big night out the night before, or the fact that he he kind of was feeling anxious about he had high blood pressure and things like this. So, uh, you know, if you were if you were a, a, you know a, a psychologist, you might wonder about a guy who whatever you know has high blood pressure before he gets a chance to move to you know the the dominant club at the time so i think there was something something about those guys and i don't think i think they they still exist in football today except they're not looked upon as fondly because they're they're you know they're all they're all multimillionaires like like ibrahimovic or berbatov or somebody is probably looked upon is probably in 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 that bracket but they're not seen as the kind of the mavericks the way those those players were. Balotelli but they, would be another one, maybe in English football, somebody who is a little bit different. And I don't think there's any great fondness for Mario Balotelli. Yeah, exactly. And again, there's a difference between what the the public had. The you know, Balotelli might be a different. Balotelli has probably exhausted the uh, the uh, patience of the public as well at this stage, but there would be a difference between how the public view some of those players and how managers view them. And I think, you know, you look at what Ferguson said about Berbatov, uh, how he wanted to, you know, he, he wanted to play it at the game at his pace. That's something that, you know, Manchester United fans who watched him, you know, plenty of them idolise him during his time there. Managers, other players will find, will have a different emphasis, will, will want different things. And I think these players, you know, Worthington, Rodney Marsh, you, you know, Matt Letizia later on, uh, they were they were players who within the game that people didn't people couldn't put up with with what 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 you had to put up with for the moments of brilliance, which is why they looked so great on on highlights packages, why they looked so great on on matches they you know nineteen seventies that kind of stuff, uh, because that's that's what that was that was what they were made for rather than the the kind of the the toil of a, of a forty two match season. The stories you hear about Stan Balls that we've been hearing this week. You know, he drifted the sideline before games to check with his mates to see how his horse had gone on in the 4.15 at Doncaster or whatever it might be. His, his mother supposedly 
said uh, was you know tired of his unwise investment. Said if my lad invested in a cemetery, people would stop dying. I don't know how true all these all these qu- quotes are, or all these old stories are. What sense did you get from him talking to the man himself ten years ago about it, the myths compared to how he actually had been in his day, playing days? Uh, uh, yeah, I think I think there was that the, the, you know the, there was a huge sense talking to him of uh, of 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 mo- the money that got away, and he, he did seem to you know he was a man. Always, uh, you know, in in <laughs> you know, trying to you know, I think to avoid avoid creditors and <laughs> various as- things like that, and looking at lamenting things that had got away. Again, his stories were so uh, you know well rehearsed at that stage that you would you would wonder about them. But you know, I I like there were there were there were things like you know the the uh, you know which is which is in the book the the story of um, how he because he was great friends with Phil Linnet and how he. Uh, he claims that you know Phil Linnett once offered him uh, all the merchandising rights for Thin Lizzy, and uh, you know in his book he laments that you know in hindsight we could have we could have earned millions. I could have earned millions because he offered it with some friend. I could have earned millions from the rights to all, you know Thin Lizzy T-shirts and, and programs and all merchandise. And you kind of think that is a classic. Two men you know who who were who had bonded in the kind of pubs of West London. Uh, one offering the other the merchandising rights, and the other then feeling that somehow his whole life would have been different if he had actually taken up this offer, rather than the the, the more likely reality that you know the the, the, t- the t-shirts would suddenly have not have been so popular, or would have never have been where they were supposed to be. Yeah, which would which would have happened. So like that was that. Yeah, but this is the thing about someone like you know, he did. Uh, he did embody that kind of sense of a guy. Who, who supporters could relate to, you know, is, you know, he grew up in Manchester with, you know, the, the quality street gang, like, you know, sort of dodgy characters. You know, there's a story, like the story he told about, uh, you know, the only time he threw a match, which was in a, a five-a-side tournament, um, when a, a friend of his who, you know, QPR were playing uh, Orient in, a, in an indoor, indoor five-a-side tournament, and a friend of his who was an Orient supporter who Stan referred to, he was known as Jewish Dennis, and uh, Jewish Dennis had a big bet on Orient to uh, to win the tournament. So he asked Stan. Uh, Stan's quote was, "He asked me to go boss-eyed in the final," and uh, and, and Stan said he said he did this. And uh, you know they lost six-one, and Stan got Stan got a grand for, for rather than the two hundred and fifty quid match fee. So uh, our, our winners' fee. So that you know that kind of stuff, which uh, which was probably endears people to, endears them to people now. Yeah, there's a sadness to some of these figures, Dion, that tends to get overlooked in some of the nostalgia you talked about. You touched upon this earlier on. I'm just wondering, when you spoke to him, you said that he had all the stories sort of down pat and he was was ready to regale you with them. Did you get close to the man himself, do you think, in terms of uh, how he was feeling at that point about how his life had gone? I mean, this is somebody who'd made bad investments, as you say, had probably had a lot of bad bets along the way too. Was he, uh, uh, did he strike as a sad figure behind the stories? Well, yeah, you would have to say yes, because, you know, there, there is, there is, you can, you can mythologize it all you like, but, uh, you know, a guy who is, is, uh, doing, is, is kind of promoting a book the way, just, you know, a <laughs> guy who's using as let's you know, a guy whose whose office is is a pub on the corner of Brentford Ground, in some ways, isn't where you would hope one of a, a great sportsman should be. Now, Stan Bowles would say that this is 
you know, he's happy with all the choices he made. He always insisted he was happy with his life. So you can't, uh, you can't talk about, you can't see it any other way. And I think gambling was his, was his great problem. And, you know, I remember we talked a bit about, he, he'd said he, he went to Gamblers Anonymous, but he, he couldn't stay because he found the stories too funny. And he said he just, you know, he was just laughing when people were telling their stories. Now, that's, that's fine, but it's, uh, you know, and he, he made his choices. So we, you can't act, act to, you know, get too judgmental and say, well, you know, maybe if, if Stan had, had sorted that out, things would have worked out differently for him. But, uh, of course, there was a kind of a, a sadness about, about that kind of a, a life, um, even though it, it's, there's something appealing about it too. And it's a, it's a great conundrum that people are going to wrestle with. There is something, uh, everybody looks at that kind of life and goes, well, you know, the, 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 how, you know what, what, what a way to what a way to live your life. But ultimately, is that the same for the person who's 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 actually living the life? And you know, sometimes it isn't. Yeah, it's a fair question, Dion. Brilliant. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. Stan Bowles with an interesting idea of how to organize his life back then. Uh, it's uh, you know, some people are very regimented in every way. He clearly wasn't during his playing career. But there are certain things that you just do not mess around with. And which pub is for business and which is for pleasure mm. in Stamboul's world? Uh, it's very important. I mean, they're, they're only yards away from each other, but it's yeah, important to get I, those right. I, I would say, however, that confusion, the, 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 um, possibi- the, po- the possibility of there being confusion when organizing your life in that fashion, it is manifold, I must say. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's how we rolled. We've talked a lot about your VHS tapes today in the yes. old Murphy household. Yeah. I presume there's a few Italian 90 ones in there as well. Uh, I, to be honest, I don't think there are any Irish-based uh, VHS tapes, or Irish-themed uh, VHS tapes. I mean, I, I certainly there are a couple of editions of the Sunday Game Year Review. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, the year 1993, I think we have the hurling and the football mm-hmm. uh, VHS tape. Other than that, though, there was uh, Husey, exclamation mark, the Mark Hughes story. Uh, that was a good one. I would have gone for Sparky there, surely. Maybe Sparky only no. emerged later on as a. I'm going to check this the next time I'm home. I'm nearly certain that it's not Sparky because I would have just immediately said that's his nickname. But maybe Mark Hughes hates the nickname Sparky. Could be. And as a result, he insisted on the story of his footballing life, encompassing, of course, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and Manchester United. I mean, is there a chance Sparky didn't have a, any say in this? And uh, I, I wouldn't want to. Yeah, uh, no. Dispute anything. No, I would say that he was the the intellectual property rights there pretty pretty fiercely negotiated over. <laughs> uh, there was Husey. There was uh, the boys from Brazil. I mean, I don't know if if you were a connoisseur of BBC football videos, but the boys from Brazil was the the gold standard. Um, literally watched four thousand times in the Murphy household. Mostly though, only from when it got to color coverage, so nineteen seventy upwards. But uh, it turns out Brazil nineteen eighty two, there were a lot of very good goals scored. So I could probably give you chat. I could recite entire goal commentaries from that uh, f- uh, from that video without. I mean, I, I I was actually texting a brother of mine, and he started texting me boys from Brazil commentary lines, and I could text the next one after that. That's not cool, but that's what we were up to. On. Murph, I've enjoyed the nostalgia fest today. 
Mm. I hope our listeners have uh, at least put up with it long enough to hear this end of the show. You can drop us an email, secondcaptainsofirishtimes.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. Thanks very much for listening to this one. Cheers, Kieran. And cheers to you too, On. Oh, yeah, I went to uh, change it up there a little bit. Well, just to mention, we've got another podcast recorded today that features, what have we got there? Ushin and Moylesy on, on the uh, weekend's football. Yes. And US, US Murph. Awesome, great stuff on US Murph, including P. Diddy. When rap moguls become overbearing fathers and allegedly attack football coaches with kettlebells. Hmm. That's it in a nutshell. You might as well listen to it because he fleshes the story out a little bit. Thanks again. Chat to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.